0: If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue through the book of Acts. We're going to pick up in chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. We'll probably stop at verse 12 just for time's sake. But we're going to pick it up in verse 1. And after the uproar that happened in Acts chapter 18 finally came to an end, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taught them, he took leave of them and he left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through the districts and had given them much teaching and exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when another plot was formed against him by the Jews, and as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided then to return to Macedonia. And he was accompanied by now here we go a bunch of proper names and those of you who know that one of my spiritual gifts is pronunciation <laughs> so i 'm going to rip through these as with the utmost confidence, and if you think it 's pronounced differently, please know you are wrong, and I am right all right i 'm just joking and he was accompanied by Sepater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus of Aristarchus and uh, Secundus, which uh, reminds me of a Disney movie, but Secundus who, uh, of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychus and Trophimus of Asia, but these had gone ahead and were waiting for us in Tros. He sailed from Philippi after those days of unleavened bread, and he came to them at Tros within five days. By the way, it only took him two days to sail there, and five days to sail back. The wind was not at his back, and there we stayed for seven days. And on the first day of the week, we had gathered together to break bread. Paul began talking to them, exhorting them, intending to leave the very next day. But he prolonged his message until midnight. I want no complaints, Trinity. (laughs) There were many lamps in the room. Where they were gathered together. How many here just go, this seems like a big hot mess of details that is really not going to transform my life at all? Anyone at all sense that right now? It will, it's there. And there was a young man by the name of Eutychus sitting in a window sill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and he fell down from the third floor and he died. I want no complaints, Trinity. (laughs) I have yet to kill a single person. But Paul went down and fell upon them, and much like Elijah and Elisha did in the Old Testament, after embracing him, he said, I don't worry about him. There's life still in him. And when he had gone back, and they had broken bread, and they had eaten, he talked to them for a long while and decided just to continue his message until daybreak. I want no complaints, Trinity. And then they left. And they took away the boy alive, and they were greatly comforted. With that being said, let's ask God's blessing, and we'll walk through this together.
1: Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. You are a great and gracious God. You give us so much purpose, joy, meaning. Truly, Your truth sets us free to live life more abundant, to worship and serve, not ourselves, but the Creator of us. Lord, You alone are worthy of praise because I am a sinner. There's nothing that I have to offer to earn or purchase my salvation, but through Your grace, and Your grace alone, and Your mercy even while I was dead in my sins, You, Lord, Father God, drew, drew us to You. Truly it is a gift. Father, I thank You that I do not stand here and teach Your Word based on my own merit, but in, because of the righteousness of Your Son alone. Father, I pray that You would bless these people. Open their ears and their eyes. Father, may our hearts be fertile to receive the truth from your word. And may it not just be an intellectual exercise, but may it change the way we live, the way we love, the way we see things. Father, I pray that this room would not be full of Republicans and Democrats and Independents and Libertarians and rights and lefts and ups and downs. Father, fill this room with people who love your son and desire your gospel. May your Holy Spirit fill us through acts of obedience. Empower us to understand your word and live it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand your word. For without him, we can't. Father, I love you. But only because you love me first. And Father, I pray these things and I ask them. And your son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. amen. I love the
0: title of this sermon. Fat Baptist Church. Fat Baptist Church. How many here hate weighing yourself? Anyone at all? I hate weighing myself. How many of you have ever admit of getting on the scale slowly as if slowly will reduce your weight by a few ounces? Anyone at all? How many here are tiptoes? Somehow tiptoes will lessen the weight on that scale. Now let's be honest here. How many here have a towel rack next to the scale and you purposely keep your hand right here as if that does not count at all? Am I alone? No, I'm not. You're a bunch of liars, all right? No. And you look at that and you say, that can't be right. I'm not that fat. In fact... If we would just start doing the laundry, I have always said this to myself, if we started doing the laundry correctly, maybe my pants wouldn't shrink and my shirt would stop shrinking and and my belt would stop being shrunk in the wash. After all, this can't possibly be what's happening in my life. We live in a day when weight is constantly evaluated. But what about our spiritual weight? What about our spiritual weight? Did you know that spiritually speaking, it is better to be fat than thin? It is better to be fat than thin in our maturity in Christ. I want to spend today walking through a passage that tells us the importance of putting on spiritual weight. In fact, Paul is going around to, to all these different churches as he gathers up a love offering for the church in Jerusalem, and he is feeding them the word of God. He started as a missionary, he's coming back as a pastor, and he's feeding them the word of God in order that they might put a little wait on, spiritually speaking, in this world. So we're going to be looking at that. Now, at first glance, it seems like Luke, who is the author here, is just pumping and dumping unrelated details of travel and drama and names and people falling asleep in church and boats and dinner menus and cities and ports and changing travel plans and it's just all over the place. He even tells us how the room is lit in the evening. But there is a very specific reason why Dr. Luke writes this all down for us today. For in it we will see two major things that we will start with and we will end with. First of all, we see Paul's unwavering commitment to strengthen the local church. And finally, how and what that looked like. So with all that being said, we're going to unpack this text of what seems like random details. And in the end, we will clearly see how Pastor Paul, and that's how he's functioning at this time, how Pastor Paul is, is fattening up the church. Now the first thing I want you to notice here up in the text is the names of all of these men that because of my love for you, I will not pronounce them again this morning. We talked about this over the last few weeks, Paul is gathering up a love offering. Paul is gathering up a love offering from the more wealthy Gentile church, i.e. Philippi and Corinth and Ephesus. These new believers have a little bit more access as Hellenistic Jews and Gentiles, a little bit more access to money, and he's gathering up a love offering from the more wealthy Gentile churches in Asia, and he's going to bring them to the suffering and persecuted church in Jerusalem that is full of Gentiles these men that you see up there in the orange are representatives of all those gentile churches these are the representatives that they were entrusted to carry their collection their love offering their money to pastor paul the apostle so that they can bring humanitarian relief to the persecuted church in jerusalem now one thing that is clear About these men in the orange here, all these representatives, and here's where we begin to get into a fat and a thin church. The first thing we can tell by these men is they are very fat, spiritually speaking. And by fat, I mean they are faithful, they are available, and they are teachable. It's an acronym. They are faithful. They are available and they are teachable. We find this brought out in the Pauline epistles, in Ephesians 6 and Colossians chapter 4. So I want to talk to us here just a little bit today on this subject here. When it comes to the bride of Christ, when it comes to, let's make it personal, because it doesn't really do us any good to, to cast it outside that window and say, this is what those churches need. No, what about us at Trinity as the collective local bride of Christ? Are we fat? Are we faithful? Are we available? And are we teachable? Oh, to be teachable! Or are we thin? And by thin, I mean, are we tardy, hesitant, isolated, and know it alls? Now, you may say that's not how you spell know it all. I'm bad at spelling, so I'm using it to my advantage this morning, all right? But you know what I'm trying to say there. Do we come in late? Are we isolated on our island of me and Jesus only and I don't need to be intimately involved into the community and I'm going to come late and I'm going to leave early and and I'm going to isolate myself and by the way, I know everything I need to know. Thin believers in the bride of Christ will never find maturity. Thin believers will never find maturity and a church full of thin believers, by the way, will eventually cannibalize one another. I cannot believe that I'm saying this in a Baptist church who is about to go into a potluck where they... How many here can smell the burgers and brats this morning? Anyone at all? How many here can sense the spirit of the Lord? By the way, Jennifer, you you gave me something to clean my glasses, and I cleaned them, and then I put my thumbprint on them. Can you? Can, and I don't have anything to clean these with. Can you just use your shirt? That's fine. I don't care. It just... Clean them up real good, all right? Because I can't see anything. But I need you guys to focus here, all right? (laughs) Don't be thin, all right? Now, and Jennifer, just let me know when those are done, okay? Usually we wrap them in a $100 bill, all right? And that's... (laughs) You don't have that? All right. They're better. Thank you, Jennifer. All right. That never happened. Here we go. I cannot believe I'm saying this. To a Baptist church that's about to go into a burger and brat, by the way, and gluttonize ourselves, all right? But here it is. We must all commit to being fat believers. We must be faithful and available and teachable. And all those who agree that we need to be a fat church, say amen. amen. Oh, yeah. Time to eat. Now grab this, the expression of love that this love offering that Paul is collecting from all these more wealthy Gentile churches, the first thing I need you to grab here, the expression of love that this offering would have to a primarily Jewish church in Jerusalem from primarily Gentile churches in Asia, the the effect cannot be overstated. The cultural diversity of personal preference and viewpoints and ideas and economic positions and racial and ethnic divisions that is going on here cannot be overstated. The diversity that existed between the believers in the early church is enormous. This love offering would have served not only as a humanitarian need, but also would have brought a diverse group of believers together in unity. Believers who have very different experiences in Christ, by the way. Very different experiences and positions. Can you imagine you got the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 who are considered half-breeds by the Jews and are cast out when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit until what, Grace? You totally spaced out. Okay, all right. (laughs) I've said that because you sent me an email. If you send me an email, you better be ready, okay? When did the Samaritan believers receive the Holy Spirit? When the apostles laid their hands on them. Completely different than Acts chapter 2. Completely different than in Ephesus and Corinthians. We got this transitional book. They have many different experiences. Experiences. Think about the different experiences and understandings that the Samaritan believers had with the Hellenistic believers and the Hellenistic believers with the Jewish believers and the former slave girl that was, that was possessed or, uh, or, or Lydia, the seller of purple in Philippi or the Roman guard who was saved. Do you know that if you take a high fly over the book of, of all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, one of the major reoccurring themes in Scripture is the unity of the bride of Christ. That is made up of many diverse backgrounds and viewpoints and nationalities and spiritual gifts. You can almost think that maybe Paul said, you got to stop seeing yourself as an isolated island and see yourself as a body with many members and many gifts all working together. One, one pastor I read this week said the following, and I love how he said it. He said, we sin when we wrongly divide from fellow Christians over minor doctrinal issues and personal preferences. The early church is filled with these. And you know what they're doing? They are sacrificially giving to help one another, even though they could not be farther from uh, each other. So the question arises, how is it possible that a a highly diverse church or group of people, how can they find unity? Well, we find unity in holding on to the essential doctrines of the faith. Now, one of the things we see Paul doing here in order to ensure that unity and maturity um, as he functions as a pastor is providing care for the young churches. They're all infant churches. They're all newly established churches. He's providing care for the church. Now notice how he primarily cares for the church. When he had exhorted them, we see that here. When he had exhorted them, we go down here. When he had given them much teaching and exhortation, we see it here. Paul began exhorting and teaching them. And it's fit. there's other points in this passage that point that out as well. First thing I want to bring out here, the single most loving thing a pastor can do to strengthen and unify the church is to exhort and teach the Word of God. All of it. In fact, it is the only, it is only in the teaching of God's word that we will bring about fat believers in Jesus Christ. Fat, unified believers in, 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 in the minds of, that have many, different, uh, di- many differences. Now, I want to make this as lovingly clear as I can to anyone who is thinking about being a pastor. Anyone who is thinking about being a pastor or in ministry, or let's just invert that, if you're here wondering, do I do I want to come to Trinity Baptist Church? I want to make something lovingly clear here. Nothing is more important than the preparation, communication, and the application of the scriptures. Amen, church? Nothing. Faith comes from hearing. Maturity comes from hearing and knowing and, and eating and consuming. Nothing can build the church up to maturity and unity absent from the clear teaching of God's word. The number one task of a shepherd and a pastor that we see here from Paul is he must feed the flock. Imagine if I was a shepherd in 1st century Israel, all right? And all of you are coming to visit my pasture, all right? And I I'm in charge of some sheep. Now this is going to be a question I want I want to get some answers from you. And you came up and we got up on the hillside and, and I said, this is the pasture that, that I have been put responsible for. And you're all visiting. And over there you see a lot of shade cloth so the sheep can sit in the shade. And over here are giant beach balls that the the sheep can bump around and play in and maybe there's a pool of water over here so they can cool off and and then we have you know uh shears who are very good at taking the wool off the sheep and they they never nip the sheep or hurt the sheep and all of these things are going on and by the way there's a protective fence around the the the, the pasture and they're they're safe from all the stuff out there but you noticed there were no feeding troughs. You noticed there was no food. You noticed there was no shed of any food. And you said, you know, it looks like you got a lot of stuff going on in this pasture. But, but when do you feed them? And I simply say, I don't. Here's the question. What would come to your mind if you found out I was a shepherd of some sheep and I never fed them? What comes to your mind? Lamb chops, yes. <laughs> By the way, I'm I'm very well fed. All right. What else? Starvation. What else? You're not a I'm not. A, ooh, I'm not a shepherd. That's very true. What would you start noticing about the sheep? Anyone? They're rather thin, They're rather thin which makes them prone to. <laughs> oh my God, I pointed at you and you're like, no, him, because you don't want me to talk to you, do you? Now I'm gonna, all right? Did you get a haircut? Oh, good, looks good, all right. Um, what was the last thing we said? Rather thin. What happens when you get rather thin? Talk to me. What's that, Sherry? Okay, yeah, the smart ones are digging under a fence right now. Shh, shh, shh. don't draw attention. We're getting out of here. What else? What happens to thin sheep who are starving? What do they start to do? They die? Ooh. They might start biting each other. How many here have ever seen the movie Alive? Anyone at all? Let's move forward, all right? It should be, that movie should not be called Alive. It should be a different name. Do we see in the church sheep biting and cannibalizing one another? Talk to me, church. Could it be that we're not being fed? Could it be that we're digging under fences and we're, we're oh, I didn't hear this one, we're hangry? And every small issue is a big issue? And we're cannibalizing, we're eating one another. Does the church do this today? Could it be because we are underfed? Satan has deceived the church and frankly its shepherds and its pastors today of providing everything but food from the word of God. Churches have become elaborate bounce houses with entertainment filled with starving people. And we wonder why the church is eating itself alive. The church does not need any longer hip programs. What the church needs for today is the, un, the inspired, unfiltered word of God. Amen? We must eat of the word. We must be fat. The trend in today's churches is to provide concerts that are followed by spiritually linked TED Talks on some relevant subject on current events. We try desperately to meet the the same expectations for people as they would an app on their iPhone. Is it easy? Is it convenient? Is it user-friendly? We do this by shortening the message, editing the context, making it user-friendly as possible. Look what Paul did. He decided to teach till midnight. All of you are going to get a complimentary bottle of water right now. The ushers are going to come down and we are going to sh- we are going to live this out, all right? I'm joking. I'm joking. He goes the opposite direction. He teaches till midnight. Now, I'm not advocating for unnecessarily long messages. I like what Jay Vernon McGee, or the good farmer, theologian, pastor. I enjoy his simple teaching. By simple, I don't mean it's ignorant. I just mean it's, it's short and to the point, and I love that. How many here would love a pastor who is short and to the point? Amen? Stop it. He said this, and I love this. Hit that button. I got it. He said, sermonettes produce Christianettes. <laughs> sermonettes produce Christianettes. Does anyone want to reword that for me? Raise your hand if you're willing to reword that. What does that mean? Raise your hand, I'll call on you. And if you don't, I'm going to call on you, Micah, so get, get working on that, all right? Anyone at all? I'll put my glasses on so I can see. What does this mean? Tim? What's that? Nothing produces nothing. nothing produces nothing. Well said. Do you have one, Micah? Simple, Christians, simple, sermons, simple, Christians. simple sermons produce simple Christians. Nailed it. Here's some that I put together because I have a master's degree in theology. No. <laughs> Which that plus $7 will get me a cup of coffee. And that is not a comment on our inflation rate this year. All right? <laughs> Did you say shallow or simple? 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 I said shallow, which is more of a graduate-level word. <laughs> <laughs> shallow teaching produces shallow believers. Weak sermons produce weak Christians. TED Talks create teddy bears. And the church does not need, within the context, the church does not need thin believers holding teddy bears, but rather fat soldiers of the king holding the armor of God. That's what we need. Now look at what Luke tells us about the details in this early church. I love this here. He's going to give us some wonderful details. Now, most of my studies this week, all right, at this point in juncture, many of the commentators drifted into what I would call poetic teaching drawing from imagery, and then going wherever they wanted to. All right? So I'm going to do that today till midnight. I'll just get a free reign at rabbit trails. No, they kind of went into poetic teaching, such as teaching about believers who, who are spiritually fed and they spiritually fall asleep in church. Or rabbit trailing into metaphors of Not a lot of oxygen in a room can cause people to sleep spiritually, but I strongly believe that that is not the purpose of Dr. Luke as he gives us all of these details. So we're going to stick to what he says and observes in this room. My friends, the first thing we observe here, all right, is that this is the earliest recorded description of a Christian worship service in all of the Word of God. This This is charter member day one, of how the church functioned in the Word of God. And there are several noteworthy observations that are important to us today if we are going to be fat believers, faithful, available, and teachable. The first thing we see here is that they met on the first day of the week. They met on Sunday. There it is. Imagine how difficult this would have been for for a Hellenistic or, or a full Jew, if you will, a Hellenistic Jew, and frankly, even a Samaritan Jew, how difficult this would have been to to them. And by the way, the primary ethnicity of the early church is the Jewish community. Yes, Gentiles are being grafted in, but the primary constituents are, are Jewish at this time. And for, by the way, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, which is kind of a heavy hitter in Judaism, All right, they were told to gather on the Sabbath day, Saturday in worship. Yet now, After thousands of years, and with a biblical command from the Old Testament, they abandoned Sabbath in many ways. Some still probably did both. But they abandoned Sabbath, and they head over to Sunday instead. There had to be an enormous reason for this change in practice, this change in culture. And frankly, there is a very good reason. Sunday is the day that we are told that Jesus rose from the dead. Sunday is resurrection day. We see that in Matthew 28. So clear is the resurrection that thousands upon thousands of Jews abandon Sabbath worship for Sunday. That alone should tell us something about the reality of the resurrection. If If the resurrection is a farce, If it never happened, and we're going to dive deeper into this more on an intellectual level this morning or this evening when we go into digging deeper, but if the resurrection is nothing but zombie day, as our culture likes to push on us, if it wasn't true, pray tell me why would an esteemed culture that believe they are chosen of God as his people abandon a commanded day to go to Sunday? Why would, did you know, historically, that not one single believer ever denounced their faith in the first century and rather died in martyrdom, were burned to death, beheaded, and sawed to death? Not one recorded uh, person in all of secular history abandoned the name of Jesus Christ that that first century. Do they really get sawed in half because they believed a lie? They abandon the sacred day and they head over to Sunday. By the way, Sunday is a work day in this culture. It's a work day. It's one of the reasons we find them in the evening when torches lit. That should something, tell us something about the reality of the resurrection. Here it is. When we meet on Sunday, when we meet on Sunday, we bear witness to the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's not a joke, and it's not fake. The thousands of Jews are doing it right now. At my first church, a lady came up to me and she said, why can't we worship on Saturday night like the church down the street? Now, I'm not throwing rocks at churches that meet on, on Saturday from time to time. Maybe small pebbles, but I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be judgmental here, but it is my Baptist DNA. And she said, why can't we have it on Saturday so that it could be more convenient for those of us who just want to get it over with? I'm thinking that logic is wrong on any day of the week. (laughs) My friends, the reason we meet on Sunday is to remind us and the world and celebrate that on this day our Savior rose from the dead. It is not something that should be done out of convenience or something to get over with, but because we are overjoyed with knowing the creator of the universe. And it gives us purpose, and it gives us meaning. And it gives us salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Oh, and by the way, a community of believers who are very different from one another, but love one another because the, the power of the gospel evaporates all that peripheral stuff. And we love one another just as Christ Jesus loved us. Amen? Isn't it great to be part of a community that doesn't live for itself? That's not in my notes. I'm going back to my notes back there. Now, also look this. Not only did they do this on Sunday, but they gathered together to break bread. What time is it? Oh, i got to move. All right, hyperspeed. We're going to be breaking bread here soon. Some scholars say the reference is to just having fellowship with one another. Others say they're talking about the Lord's Supper. And after a a communion, and after a lot of study, I'm going to go out on a limb and say of the two, the answer is yes. It's both. We gather in biblical fellowship to exhort and encourage and love one another and and, and to speak truth into each other's lives because it's very easy to hold a lie in our hand and call it true. But we also gather around the, the communion table to remember the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to understand we don't gather, gather around because of our political party and our, our hobbies that bind us together. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that binds us together. And then look at what he did. Paul began talking to them again. They met around the instruction of God's word. We are meeting together around the instruction of, word, of God's word because if we don't eat it, we're going to be thin. We're going to be tardy and hesitant and isolated and know-it-alls. And by the way, it was not just a soundbite. A lot of times people will judge sermon on the delivery and the efficiency of the pastor. But may I inject one more responsibility, the appetite of the learner? Do you come hungry and prepared for God's word? Or do you ruin your appetite with junk food the night before with entertainment and no sleep? They were hungry for the word of God and Paul was eager to feed them. And he prolonged his message, message till midnight. And then Luke, who by the way is present at this time, we can see this is part of the we passages. All right? He is present. He's an eyewitness to these things. He's in the upper room. We see that in the pronoun we right there. So Luke is here. He's in the room. He's he's looking at the torches. He he sees this little boy over there nodding off. And he gives us ridiculous amounts of detail. I'm about to dump on you very quickly a ridiculous amount of details that seem random, but they're all going to connect to a major application. So here we go. He uses the word lamps. The word lamps here literally means torches. they see here it means torches and it says here there was a young man now we may say so what so what what big deal about the young man the words young man literally here in the greek means a boy a tween if you will he's about seven to twelve seven to fourteen years of age so paul literally because he he loves details by the way i love details someone changed the 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 the, the curtains in the old nursery and, and i walked in i'm like new curtains i love details it's also a burden, all right? He says there's a tween, teenager in the room, and it's filled with burning lamps. The word also, by the way, this word in the Greek can also be referred to a servant boy. By the way, Sunday is a workday in both the Jewish and Gentile world. That's why they're meeting at night here. Everyone there worked that day. So when you add this all up, there is a young servant boy who worked all day in a room full of people with torches sucking up all the air in a stuffy room as the hour approaches midnight, which tells us Paul's been speaking nearly three hours. I don't want to hear any complaints, Trinity. That should have been the title of the sermon. Now what I want you to do is I don't want you to see this as a a a a a um what's it called when you go to school a textbook all right I want you to put yourself in that room are you there 3 hours torches it's cramped packed three stories up in a large room put yourself in that room smell the smoke it's stuffy it's hot only Luke would give us such wonderful first-hand details as he witnesses this himself. They are almost humorous in nature. No wonder you find the boy sitting on the windowsill. He needs some fresh air. He needs to stay awake. How many here in the middle of the winter have, how many here know this? what this motion means? Anyone at all? you got to be a certain age to know what this means, all right? This is how you used to roll down the window back in the day. How many here have ever rolled down your window in the middle of the winter in order to get fresh cold air so you can stay awake? Anyone at all? Your generation. No, I'm teasing. Let's move forward, all right? I don't have time. He's sitting on the windowsill. He's trying to stay awake. He's trying to get some fresh air. But time, nature, and fatigue finally get the best of him and he falls into a deep sleep. By the way, this is the first recorded time that someone has, is ever shown in the Word of God to fall asleep in church. A couple of weeks ago, there you are, Jennifer, and Eric was next to you. And I asked him a question, and he was gone. I how is that possible? Thin believer. I just remember it so well, because we've all been there. I'm like, hey, and I called him, I didn't call him. I called him Jeff. That might have been one of the reasons. His name is Eric, all right? Uh, I, I, I said, right, Jeff, and he was like, I mean, the head was going back and forth. I thought, he doesn't belong here. But the truth of the matter is, many godly people fall asleep in church. How many here would say, I as a godly man or woman have fallen asleep in church? Anyone at all? I made it into an art form in Bible college. I could sleep through chapel with my eyes open with my pen right here. Everything was perfectly balanced didn 't learn much during chapel, but I did get credit for going. <laughs> Truth is many people who love the Lord fall asleep in church. This young man is no different let 's give the guy some credit. How many here have the last time you sat through a three hour meeting in an upper room three hour meeting that reminds me of a three hour tour with Gilligan and Skipper Two and the millionaire. Focus folks all right for three hours you 're up there. This young man is very dedicated young believer. By the way, he's a servant boy. He worked all day. He worked all day, which by the way we know within this culture the workday ended around nine, nine thirty at night. That's why they're in the upper room going till midnight. He wouldn't miss church for anything. Would you miss church for anything? His spirit is willing but his body is failing and he falls down from the third floor and he's picked up dead. Now, are you ready for this next detail? There's so many details here and I love how it's strung together. All right, here's this next detail. His name is Eutychus, which by the way means lucky. (laughs) How cool is that? I cannot wait to have lunch with Dr. Luke when I get to heaven. I love details. I bet Dr. Luke was a nerd, too. And there sets lucky, dead on the ground, after working all day, being forever enshrined in the word of God as the first boy to ever fall asleep in church. Could be worse. But we'll find that he's actually very lucky, very fortunate. And Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. Then he took the boy away alive, and they were greatly comforted. And Paul goes back inside, and he says, You know what? Let's go tell daybreak. He talked to them a long while until daybreak. Now, I'm not saying that we should extend our teaching time until the break of dawn. There are two reasons why this happened. One, Paul is leaving them the very next day, and he may not very well, may never see these people again, so he's going to stay as long as possible. Plus, also, hear this, someone has said, if you're going to preach for this long, you better be able to raise people from the dead. (laughs) Amen? Amen? If I raise someone from the dead here at Trinity this morning, I can guarantee you that would buy me more of your time and attention. But since I have not, let me bring this to an end. So what are we to glean from these seemingly randomly random details? What we see here is what we began with. Paul's unwavering commitment to strengthen the local church, to feed the local church, to fatten the local church. My friends, this text primarily shows us what Paul was like as a pastor. And I want that to be true of us pastors here at Trinity as well. Paul's highest priority is that the church is equipped theologically and spiritually to persevere after he leaves. D.L. Bach nails it when he says this. Paul's legacy, there it is, Paul's legacy is that when he leaves, he doesn't leave monuments of himself, but rather believers who are a monument to God and their faithfulness. My friends, that must be the goal of any shepherd of the flock of Christ. I was thinking about that this week. I always try to just kind of insert myself emotionally sometimes into the text without compromising it intellectually and hermeneutically. I wanted to kind of insert myself into this text, and I was thinking about this this week, and my thoughts drifted to the day when I will leave you, like Paul in this context, the day will come when I am no longer your pastor. And I hate that thought. As much as I complain, I love you guys. I love you, brother. You're a little harder to love, but I love you. <laughs> when people ask me how things going at Trinity, I tell them I am so blessed. We have no infighting in leadership. We have no territory fights. There's no political currents going on. Oh, we have problems. We all bring our baggage. How many here would say, I I am a broken person who brings baggage to to the table? Anyone at all? I do. But I tell them I am so blessed, but the day will come like Paul when I will no longer be your pastor. This has been the best 17 years of Amy and I's life. But whether that is because of my health, or the Lord's leading, or you just get sick of me, which is probably the higher value of those, when I am no longer with you, I, I want this to be said of me. I know the pastors want this to be said of themselves. I don't want to hear about what the world's trappings that are used to evaluate a pastor today, building programs, spiritual gifts, budgets, programs, staffing, the growth and of the campus footprints, because truthfully, all of those things could just as easily be true of an executive of Walmart and Meyer. What a waste of time that would be. My friends, what I want to hear that when I am no longer with you is that you were so theologically and spiritually fed that the one thing that I left behind was not a, a monument to, to what I did, but rather monuments of God in the form of unbelievably fat believers who are strengthened and unified not around political party or culture or style or brand of Christianity, but rather unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ Christ for his glory alone. Because you want to know what? All of our, our, our discernible differences ought to evaporate in the heat of the all-surpassing all surpassing awe of his gospel. God will not use you, he will not use me, he will not use us to change the world by accident. You and I have to be fat, fat believers, faithful, available, and teachable, not thin, tardy, hesitant, isolated, know-it-alls. It's time to put on spiritual weight, which means we must eat from the Word of God, all of it. Here's the question. Are you fat or are you thin? Are you fat? Are you faithful? Are you available? Are you growing in your knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are you teachable? Or are you tardy, hesitant, isolated? don't need to know anymore. May God add his blessing to his perfect word. And may it be said of us that not only are our bellies full of truth, but the energy we gain from it is seeing how we live our lives. The believers fractured the culture of Corinth Not because of their political activism, but because they lived out the gospel in their lives. Gracious Heavenly Father,
1: bless your word. Bless your word. Bless your word.
0: word. And as we come together, To break bread.
1: To have communion. To remember your body and your blood. Church, I'm talking to you now. If there is any broken fellowship in this room between believers, Father, your word tells us do not eat and do not drink if we have not made it right and we are not in Unity and relationship with one another. Church, if there's someone in this room that you have broken fellowship with, do not take communion today. Lest we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Go make it right. If there's any sin in your life that you need to confess, take this moment wash your feet, rejoicing that you have no need for a bath.
0: Father, bless this time. May we be fat. May we never mission drift from proclaiming the death and resurrection until you come back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.